This episode of the Anti-Heroes Podcast with Zach Blair is presented by Thunder Road Guitars. Thunder Road Guitars is the Pacific Northwest's best source for premium new, used, and vintage guitars, amplifiers, and pedals. Online or in their Seattle and Portland shops, you'll find fantastic customer service and a terrific vibe. I personally always make a stop at Thunder Road Guitars in Seattle. Uh, they're a great bunch of guys, and it's just not a complete Seattle trip unless I go and say hi and see what uh, wonderful stuff they have. These are real people offering real service, folks. Uh, use code ANTIHEROES10 to get 10% off at www.thunderroadguitars.com and tell them I sent you. Hey guys, this is Zach from the Anti-Heroes Podcast, and I want to welcome our newest sponsor to the show, DistroKid. DistroKid helps musicians get their music on all the major streaming platforms, and artists keep 100% of their royalties. Can you believe that? Anti-Heroes listeners get 30% off at distrokid.com slash VIP slash anti-heroes. Again, that's distrokid.com slash VIP slash anti-heroes. Thank you so much and support all the folks at DistroKid because they're they're doing amazing work and we couldn't be happier to have them on board. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors over at Jim Dunlop and MXR Pedals. We couldn't be luckier to have these guys on board with us. I personally use these products and you should too. Find out more about them at jimdunlop.com. Let's get on to the podcast. Welcome to the Anti-Heroes Podcast with your host, Zach Blair. I am Zach Blair. Hi there. Thank you for tuning in. I am about to get to do some Rise Against stuff, which is going to be fun because I get to mess with all of my gear. I am rethinking my pedal board and just going more traditional. I don't know why. I have flights of fancy, folks, but there's something still so cool to me about amplifiers and analog pedal boards. Okay, well, uh, let me get on to today's show. Today's show is my first bassist. I am so excited about that, and I'm even more excited by the fact that it is my brother. This is a, such a special, important episode for me, and I mean, it's my brother. This is the second person I ever laid eyes on, the first being my mother, and then my brother. He was right there, and I wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for this guy. I wouldn't be who I am if it wasn't for this guy. I probably wouldn't be alive. He's actually saved my life countless numbers of times because I would just run out in front of cars when I was a kid. And he taught me my work ethic. He taught me uh, how to practice, how to be focused, how to, he taught me everything. And he's my favorite musician in the world. He's my favorite bassist in the world. In my opinion, he's the best. And I couldn't be prouder of him. And so I'm just so happy to have him as my first bass player. And I will have other bass players on this season. This is a really fun interview. We get into sort of a brother's argument that I'm glad we caught. It's on here. I didn't edit it out because this is how it is, folks. Let's get into this. My interview with Donnie Blair.
Hey, Bob. Hey, yo. Okay, so for everyone uninitiated, this is my brother, Donnie Blair. I will not be calling him Donnie Blair or Donovan Blair, which is his name. I will call him Bub because... You're not allowed to call me by my name. Exactly. He does not like... He doesn't like it when I call him by his name. It's not my name to you. Right. I know. And uh, it's our it's a brother thing. It's also... <clears throat> could be a Texas Hick thing. I don't know. Could be. But... Probably whatever is. the Whatever the case is, I call him Bub. So for the duration of this interview, I will be calling him Bub as to not confuse. This is also my first bassist on the podcast. So that's... Monumentous, monumental, monument-ish. Moment- momentous, no. momentous, momentous. Go with monumental. <laughs> monumental. Uh, my first bassist also happens to be my brother. We started our careers together as we started kind of everything together. I believe you were the second person in the world I met after. <laughs> Third. You, you met mom and dad first. I don't know. Yeah, I'm gonna met you before dad. Actually, I think you I think you met the nurses and the doctors. Either way, this is my brother. And we started our career together. We had a band called Hackfish in the 90s. And then my brother started putting out instrumental records, which you've been doing for 23 years, maybe a little longer now. Uh, 25. Yeah. Under, first of all, the band The Mag 7, and now yep. the band The Tulsa Doom, which is your solo stuff, which we'll get into that as well. Um you and I had another band called Only Crime together with Bill Stevenson from Black Flag Descendants All, who was also sort of a mentor to us our whole careers. Took us under his wing, thankfully, because we just idolized him. And that was, Hackfish was basically just a tribute to him. And then about 16 years ago, about a year into my tenure in the Rise Against band, you joined the Toadies. And the Toadies, uh, People don't know, which would be crazy if you're a rock guitar fan, if you don't know the Toadies because they're fucking ubiquitous. Our band started in the 90s in Texas, started in the same scene, playing shows together when we were younger and to no one. And they made a record that sold four million, five million, six million. No, I think I say this only two million. <laughs> well, I, I, think it, I think it was more. But it's it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous and it's all over the place. And uh, you have been with that band now for since two thousand eight, fifteen years now. Yeah, so a really long time. And you guys just recorded with Steve Albini, which is, I mean, geez, yeah. what a career high. And we'll get into that as well. And I couldn't be prouder of you for that. So thank you. Yeah, we'll talk about that. So another thing about this entire interview is we have to suspend the idea and thought that I don't know these answers, which I do. You could do this whole thing by yourself. Yeah. I need to be here. Well, I mean, we did just get off the phone for an hour, which we talk every day for an hour. By the way, a minute ago, you said, I think it'd be fucking rad if you guys changed your name to the Rise Against Band. (laughs) Run it over with it. Call the guys, see what they say. Fly it up the flagpole. Yeah. Um, Run it up the flagpole, see what they say. (laughs) See if it salutes. Uh, okay, so um, this is such a vague question, and I definitely know the answer, but how did you get started playing bass? You and Dad talked me into it because I wanted to be a drummer. And I think Dad, he didn't want to pay for a fucking set of drums. That's what I think. And I, I remember both of y'all were like, why don't you play bass? Yeah. And I didn't want to be Bill Wyman. I thought that was boring as shit. And then I remember dad played. Nothing against Bill Wyman. 
Anyway, <laughs> I remember Dad said something like, "Oh no, 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 son," because you know, I mean, the Stones were not big in our house. It was not a big, yeah. it was not a Stones-heavy household. But um, I remember Dad played a uh, long-distance runaround by Yes off of uh, Fragile, and I heard that and was like, "Oh shit, I can sound like that." And that's kind of what started, I think. And I think dad knew I was left-handed, so he thought I was going to play the opposite of you. And he was kind of bummed when he found out I wasn't. He <laughs> thought it would look cool. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, also, to fill in the listener, our dad was a classic rock radio DJ. So he had this yeah. really great music taste. He had this great music collection which fortunately, you know, our parents, our dad was a radio DJ. Our mother was a florist in a grocery store. So money was, was not abundant, but my <laughs> they dad were had, happy, but we didn't have they were, yeah. They did what they wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. We always lived in apartment complexes and my brother and I shared a room, which was beneficial to what we ended up yeah. doing. But my dad always did have a great vinyl collection uh, because it was one of the perks of being a DJ. He would bring them home. They were called punch outs. Uh, they couldn't sell them. They would put like a hole punch through the corner of them and my dad would bring those records home and my dad was into the heavier stuff even like back then the sort of proto metal yet he also turned us on to uh oingo boingo he sucked in he often was full of shit he also got into post-punk and new wave and and all of that sort of stuff and even punk i mean he you know he brought home that no wave soundtrack uh no oh, wave yeah. compilation which was the Dickies and the police and Clark Kent and Squeeze. I remember he loved Fishbone. Yeah, he loved Fishbone. And back then he he loved prog rock and heavier acid rock and stuff. So it was for us, it was great because we we also had a penchant for the uh the heavier stuff. So you kind of brushed on it a little bit there, but your your early guys, who were your early guys? Um, Chris. Squire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> forgot. I mean, I you think you don't know? <laughs> you met him, and it got down. <clears throat> true story. True story. Right. My brother. Yeah, right. Here, my brother. My brother was in Hawaii. Hang on, motherfucker. My brother was in Hawaii, and his idol has always been Chris Squire from Yes. And he went to the store. Him and his wife were on to, on a vacation in Hawaii, and he went to like the corner store just to get some stuff for the room. And he's standing right behind fucking Chris Squire. Yeah, we had just gotten off of the flight. We were in Maui. And there was this, it's a grocery store in Lahaina. Actually, Kaanapali. That may not be there anymore, unfortunately. And we were walking around, and I saw him, and I start stuttering. And my wife was like, what? And I said, that's Chris Squire. I mean, we'd been on a flight for eight hours. She was over it. She was like, okay. I'm going to go get the fucking food. You do whatever the fuck you're going to do. Yeah. And I went up to him and I was just like, like, holy shit. Can I get your, I didn't say holy shit, but I just said, you know, can I get your, <laughs> but he was so nice and so thankful. And it was like one of the only times in my life I've been nervous. And he passed away not too long after that, huh? Well, I was talking to you. Immediately I called you. I said, I think I called you in the middle of the night, but I think later on the next day we were talking and he walked in front of our patio and you were talking and you kept talking. I was like, shh, Zach, Zach, and you're kind of like, shh, shh, Chris Squire's walking right in front of me. You're like, are you fucking kidding me right now? I'm like, yeah, right now. 
He's fucking walking in front of me. And we didn't have FaceTime, or I could have FaceTimed, which would have been weird, but it would have been cool. You could have yeah. seen him. And that, my listeners, is a day in the life of the Dork Brothers. <laughs> Dude, Chris Squire is walking right in front of my house right now. And you were equally as excited. You no, were, I know. No, I'm not. I am not shunning. I know. The, the, I'm saying, oh, I fuck, know. I'm I'm taking full responsibility for being a complete guy. But, you know, it was him and Getty Lee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Getty Jones, um, <laughs> Roberts <laughs> of the Doobie Brothers of Wishbone Ash. It was you know, and Cliff, fucking Cliff Burton too. You yeah. know, and then Chris Squire passed away not too long after that. And I'm saying I think maybe it, you killed him. <laughs> um, I did. That sucks. Yeah, yeah. Only one of us can live. Okay, so those those were early guys, and you also have an obsession with the Rickenbacker bass that has gone throughout your sort of tenure as a bass player. Now, if you look up pictures of my brother, he didn't always play a Rickenbacker bass, but he is definitely playing them now. You played them in the '90s a bit. You played them. You yeah. kind of flirted with them in and out, and they're not so friendly. You know, you got to kind oh. of find the thing that works for you and for you it was changing out the bridges and doing things like that so it took you a while yeah. to sort of find the sweet spot but you always obsessed about it. do you think that it was chris squire and john entwistle and getty lee that sort of oh, yeah. fueled fueled that and cliff you know cliff used one on kill them all but i think hearing long distance run around first and just that sound then i got signals and i looked on the back of it by rush thank you fuck forgot yeah I forgot. It's not just it's not just it's not just us talking. (laughs) But anyway, when I got signals, you know, that was when they used to say what the band used, you know, because I think yes had that on Tormato and it said he used a Rickenbacker and then said that Getty used a Rickenbacker on signals. So it was just kind of piecing together in my head like these great tones were like, of course, I loved Steve Harris, but I wasn't freaking out over his precision tone. You know, so it was having that was kind of the standard, you know, Kira also from Black Flag. Just I mean, every time in still to this day, if I see pictures of them, even though I have fucking three and I'm going to buy more. And it it also it's it works back, I think, with my band's tone. Elisa Umbarger, the first bass player in the Toadies. I always I mean, shit, Lisa can go along with this that I bugged the fuck out of her about her Rickenbackers all the time. I'd always ask her to sell me one. She never did. But I think it's it, it works with the band's tone. I like that yeah. tone. And maybe that was it before, because I remember you used one back in the Hackfish days and it wasn't really it didn't really work for us. And then you flirted with it yeah. in different bands. But I think you just found the right sort of combination. But we'll get to that in a minute as far as the combination of your tone. But you know, people underestimate it wasn't as easy as just googling what a guy was using you didn't no. know back then and it was in until rush came out with the exit stage left video the vhs that we would obsessively rent at the local video store in sherman because there wasn't even a goddamn blockbuster for a while that had the uh, tanning booth in it yeah it had a tanning booth in it and you would obsess we would rent that and you would just watch it and getty lee of course is playing the black rickenbacker and that and that's in the 90s and yeah so you you really just knew from a tone i'm sorry what were you no, going to say about going back to 
it took a bit for them. I think just any person that plays Rex often on a knows that sometimes like their pots or the pickups, they go through different changes. Sometimes they don't sound as good, you know? So I think now they kind of got it right all around the mark. And, and other Rickenbacker lovers are going to probably disagree with me, but I don't really give a shit because I know what works <laughs> for my band. If that's the pull quote from this interview. I think it's the pull quote from my life. I don't really give a shit, you know, but I mean, <laughs> I don't do really I? give a shit. You know, but I mean, a lot of people love to buy them and put them up on a wall and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I don't buy Ricks so they can look pretty. I buy them because they sound amazing. And I think now they kind of have hit it on the mark the past few years because the technology that they have is fantastic. And I think their pickups are great. Their pots are great. You know, you've heard the results. Yeah, but you you do sort of think that aesthetically they are completely oh, awesome overall, as well. I, I mean, mean you listen do to Roger s- Waters on all of Machine Head by Deep Purple, uh, even though it has a fucking uh, precision on the back of it. He played a Rick in that entire yeah. thing. See, now here's where you, I mean, like this, this podcast is fucking dorky, but if you start talking about what <laughs> records specifically, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to draw a line I somewhere. got a list. I know what they are. Too. I know you do, <laughs> motherfucker. But anyway, okay. So we brought you a little bit about it. So with, with your Rickenbacker and with this new record, and we'll talk about Albania in a second as well, you sort of, in my opinion... Of course, you're my brother, so I'm biased and I'm partial. You're my favorite bass player, uh, you know. But you also are a very discernible player, which I feel like is the best compliment you can give to a musician. Thank you. I know personally, and maybe if other uninitiated folks aren't, you know, I'm partial. But I know when it's you playing. And that, no matter, you know, you and I both have changed our mind about gear our entire careers. We're not guys who have like found one thing. I mean, I've used Gibson guitars for the bulk of my career, but I've also used other Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and it always seems like you, though. That's well, the thing. thank you. But your new tone on this new record, it is a Rickenbacker. It is different, and it does sound very much like you, in my opinion. And you, do you want to talk about a little bit about what you're using on the new the new record you just recorded? Yeah. We went in with Steve Albini. I took just my Maple Glow 4001, and I took my uh, Dark Glass Alpha Omega, that 900 head. And just my pedals, which has like a, a micro tubes, like a dark glass micro tubes pedal on it. And that was pretty much it. You know, here and there, I used the uh, Ass Master that you bought me a couple years ago. <laughs> there is a pedal uh, called the Bass Master, and it's a boutique bass fuzz, I guess, is the best way to uh, yeah explain it. Germanium diode, handmade, and... Uh, it is by the Maleco Heavy Industry as the company that makes the bass Is that master. Paul Barker for Ministry? Oh, I don't know. I think I thought he was behind it. But regardless, I used that just in one song. The rest of it was my stuff through one of Steve's uh, Emperor Cats. So, <clears throat> sorry, you are completely right. Maleco is co-owned by entrepreneur Josh Hawley and music industry veteran Paul Barker. They make a... Um, Outboard gear, all kinds, synth gear. They do all kinds of Maleco. Cool. It's a good company. Cool company. Uh, but that, so you have had that 
that pedal on your board for quite a while. And um, I use it on the record a few times, not a lot, but a few times. And it's, you used you used an Emperor cab, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was great. Steve had it. He had a bunch of he has a bunch of fantastic trainer heads as well, and we tried them, and they sounded cool, just not what I wanted to hear for the record. You know, I didn't want to go for a a, a different more mid-rangey tone um i wanted it to sit underneath you don't try to if you got vaden singing in your band you don't really want to step out in front of that you kind of need to let i don't know people want to hear that over whatever fucking bass line i'm playing (laughs) yeah you know and you know and i think you nailed it and i think you you it's weird because to me it's like it sounds like you the sound that i am very accustomed to knowing you know of you Thank the way you. you phrase, the way you play, but it also sounds perfectly toadies. It perfectly Steve Albini. Yes. It's exciting and it's and it's a great record, and, Thank and you. Uh, I can't wait for everybody to hear it. So, talk me through a, a little bit about like what it was like working with Albini. Like, uh, how was that for you know you and me uh, as aforementioned? We are music nerds, yeah. and that when I knew that was happening, I was so proud of you, and I was so you know creatively jealous and you know uh but living vicariously through you so what was that like amazing and and steve was just very i think steve gets a bad rap from some of the music industry but i think it's just because he's super honest if you ask him his opinion he'll fucking tell you he doesn't prefer or offer an opinion all the time definitely not within a production standpoint that's just not his thing he keeps it more to engineering but I think he's very honest to, and I think, how many musicians do we know? We're not, not all musicians are incredibly thick skinned, but thankfully my band is. And uh, yeah. Steve was just very, he was one of us, basically. He was very sarcastic, but just, he had great ideas. Whenever he did have an idea, we always took it. It was fantastic just to watch him work and editing if we had to do an edit of something really quick just to cut something off, he got out the fucking uh, razor blade and went right at it with tape. That's another thing in today's day and age. For those that don't know, everything is done digitally now. There's a, a recording software called Pro Tools. There's Logic. There's, uh, there's all kinds of things. And it's keystrokes. And the old way is actual tape, reel-to-reel tape. And if you needed to make an edit, you went at that thing with a razor blade and you yeah. taped it back together. And Steve Albini still does things that way. It's it's like the the old school butter churn almost. And yeah. so it's a real yeah. it's a real thing to behold and witness. Uh, you and I are, are old enough that we made records on tape before, and it's a yeah. it's a process. And it's uh, you also have to be on your shit as a band and as a musician too. Yeah, it keeps us it kept us on our shit because. I mean, I listen back to it now and like, and you know, you listen to things today and you wonder, okay, that sounds great, but did I really play it or is it edited where I sound good? Is that why it sounds good? This, when I listen to it, like, oh, fuck, I played this. I mean, all of the bass and drums were done together within a few takes. That Rez and I were done in five days, but... Yeah, that's kind of normal for me and Rez. And then Vaden and Clark went back and did guitars and vocals. And it would be a thing of, you know, Vaden going in and fucking knocking it out like that guy does. 
and Clark going yeah. in and knocking it out, you know, and Clark's playing on this record specifically spectacular, I think. Yeah. I'm excited for everybody to hear it, but well, I mean, that's just, it's, it's, it's quite a, an achievement and accomplishment. And, um, yeah, I, I'm really proud of you. I think Steve brought it out a big, I think just being around having his sense of, of just musicianship and just his history. And I think he really brought it out the best in this. And to just join the pantheon of his records, you know, from Jesus Lizard to PJ Harvey to Page and Plant to oh, yeah. uh, Digits to everything he's, he did for Touch and Go and everything, you know, it's just his own bands, Big Black, Shellac, you know, yeah. it's uh, it's it's quite the pedigree. We'll back up just a little bit, well, a lot, actually. Talk about maybe getting the Toadies gig because you were not a pick player. So oh. for people, you know... I guess the quote unquote proper way of playing bass traditionally is with your fingers and your guys, Getty Lee, John Paul Jones, Steve Harris, not Chris Squire, were finger guys. And so you you did it that way and you learned how to do it very, very well. As a matter of fact, I made a video, a riff video for this particular interview where I tried to play one of your lines with my fingers and I couldn't fucking do it. It was laughable because I know you played the riff with your fingers because I was there. So... The Toadies gig came up. You and I always loved the Toadies. Every band in Dallas loved the Toadies and looked up to them in the 90s. Yeah. And and the gig came up. You would kind of, I wouldn't say gone legit. You'd settled into life. You know, you had left Only Crime and you were kind of going to do your solo records and your, your instrumental records and things. And then this gig came up and you were like, but it's a pit gig. And so you and me, you flew up, I was making a record in Colorado and we worked on it and you got the gig amongst other careered bass pick players. I knew you would get it, but I was really proud of you as well. So talk a little bit about getting that. Well, I remember whenever I sent the email, it turned out to be our manager who's going to be here in a little bit. She's coming to hang out with me. And I think, uh, I got the email back from them. They were like, all right, well, this is a pick gig and it's all downstrokes. Is uh, that cool? And I said, uh, oh, yeah, it's, I totally got it. This is totally cool. And it was not cool. I didn't have it. <laughs> I was, I think I called you immediately and was like, dude, I got an audition with the Toadies. You're like, great. You'll nail it. And it was like, it, it's a pick gig. You're like, oh, shit. Well, yeah. here's what you do. And you guys were making Appeal, remember? Uh, appeal to Reason. Yeah, by the Rise Against Band. Yeah. And me and Shelly, my wife, we flew up and you and I worked on it. You would work in the day. She and I would hang out. And then um, that night, I think, you know, you'd go to your apartment. We were staying with you and you and I would just work on stuff. And when I showed up for the audition, I did three songs because they'd been in the middle of making no deliverance. So Faden's voice was just cashed. He'd been singing all day. They were doing like two or three days of rehearsals. And uh, I'm sorry, two or three days of uh, interviews and stuff with people and uh, auditions and shit. So I just did three songs and I called Shell before I went in. And I think 30 minutes later, I called her back when I was out. And her first words were like, Shit, that's not good. That was pretty quick. When, yeah, no, fuck. <laughs> but I think they said that they kind of pretty much knew right from the beginning that it, it, it had sounded that they could tell that I did my homework. And they didn't know that I wasn't a pick guy at all. I didn't well, tell them until well, 
much fucking later, you know, and I never played with my fingers up until Play Art Music, that song, Rattler's Revival. Baden sent us the demo, and he was telling me one night, he goes, dude, I hear fingers on that. What do you think? And I was like, fuck, yes. I said, I don't want to do that with a pick. All right, yeah. cool. And now it's one of those where I make that decision, you know. I only play one song on the new record with my fingers. That's it. Well, it's pretty insane because I remember you starting off. It was almost like you didn't you didn't know how to hold a pick. And people don't understand. You had never tried to play with a pick. It was like somebody learning how to play from a beginner. But you had been a you had had a career for twenty five years by that point, or whatever yeah. it was. You know, maybe not that long, but twenty years and. To start from there and to get a gig amongst other, I was just, it's a true uh, testament to your determination. You helped me so much. So let's, Well, sure, sure. But, but hold it. You told me different things to look for, especially with downstroking. I mean, and of course my fucking luck. And of course, now I know how Vaden is with the particulars and making sure things are right. But of course I wouldn't get a gig just playing a pick. I had to get the downstroke pick <laughs> yeah. right, right that's the one i had yeah. to go for i couldn't just go for a normal one where it'd be fine i had to go for the downstroke one <laughs> thankfully i've been under the tutelage of stefan edgerton for yeah. a long time so i was i had that in my wheelhouse well anyway i just uh, yeah i thought i always thought that was a great story and i was quite proud of you and man I, I think both parties are very lucky with that that outcome i've i've always told them so i've always thanked them for having my brother in their band, but I've also, uh, the other side of my mouth also said, but you're kind of lucky that he's in your band. So I, anyway, I don't think they look at it that way. <laughs> I think well, they would disagree with you 100%. <laughs> well, you're being facetious. It is a very facetious comment. S-A-C-T-I-O-U-S, facetious. Yeah. I think they, I think they very much are happy that they have a bass player like yourself. We do love each other as as guys, it's we do, really do like each other and love each other, and it's it's a really good vibe we have, especially after making this fucking record. We're on cloud nine because we own it. It's our record. We can do whatever the hell we want with it, you know. So yeah, I mean, few people have that. So we're, now we just have to figure out who's going to put it out, where, and how, you know, and then you know. So yeah, everybody, everybody should be on the lookout for that and the lookout for toadies on tour. Well, I want to back up. I want to back up a little bit. You were talking earlier about, you know, that audition and how it was a pit gig and you were a finger player before that. You were famously a finger player before that all mm -hmm. through Hackfish, Only Crime, everything we did. You didn't want to know how to play with a pick. Your no. guys were, you know, Getty Lee and Steve Harris and John Paul Jones um, who some of those guys play with a pick, but you were the fan of the finger players and Carl Alvarez from the descendants. Oh, yeah. And you did get a gig, uh, a pick gig <laughs> after picking up a pick, you know, for two weeks before. And so I just, I always was really, you know, I, I found that very commendable yeah. and I still find that very commendable. I might've, you know, showed you some things about playing with a pick, but what I was going to say earlier about your work ethic, it definitely wore off on me and it just was pervasive, you know, in our household because it's just yeah. how you did things. And I think it was, it's been 
paramount in in my own career and 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 why I have excelled and done things. And you know, I, that sounds a bit braggadocious, but I'm not no. trying to be. I just if there's something that needs to be done or something I could do, I am going to push myself harder than hopefully anyone else to try to do something because after all, it is music and what is in our opinion, and I think I could speak for you, what is a better thing to do with your life than play music? I was listening to an interview with John Mulaney, the uh, stand-up comedian, and he sort of said something similar about that, but he was like, I don't understand how everyone else isn't a stand-up comedian. I don't understand why everyone in the world isn't a stand-up comedian, meaning you know, he loves his job and what he does so much. And I was like, I feel like the same way. I don't understand why everybody just didn't go, oh, I just want, I mean, a lot of people did, you know, that's, that's discrediting the sort of extra 10% it takes to do it at a professional level that people just have, or they don't. But I also think it's some people, and I know we've discussed this a lot. There were plenty of people we grew up with who had so much talent, but talent definitely doesn't get you anywhere. I think there were people that had more talent than us, but yeah, no one I don't think anybody had more drive than you and I did. And it wasn't drive to be the toppermost of the poppermost. We didn't give two shits about being anywhere, we're, even where we are now. We just wanted to get the hell out of Sherman. We wanted to be on tour. We wanted to make records, be on tour, and play the music we wanted to play. That was it. That's yeah. all we cared yeah. about. And we achieved no, that. Everything else after that was cherry on top. But we knew we weren't going to do that. We knew we had... Our ears were pretty good, but we knew we had more drive and determination than most of the people we were hanging out with to get out, to go do stuff. We believed in us. No one else did. Maybe one person, you know, mom, dad, and Billy. (laughs) That's about it. Billy, for those listening, is uh, our friend that we grew up with. Yeah. So, but you know what I mean? There wasn't a lot of people that believed in us. And no, I, I, I know. And I think maybe that was what sort of one of the uh, sort of ingredients in the determination was like, all right, motherfucker, I'm going to show you. Exactly. But, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I had a big mouth. And so I had an easier high school, even though I still didn't have many friends. You were insular and it was a lot harder on you. And I feel like I feel like that added to your determination. And I think we both benefited yeah. from that. You were like, okay, once it was like, okay, we're going to do this. You took that to a fucking different level where it was like, oh shit. It was like, ju- you know, jumping onto a merry-go-round that was, or a or moving train locomotive, you know, and like you grab on it, it just fucking takes off. Cause you were like, all right, boom. And you set your sights on it. And it's just what we did. And again, like you said, we didn't have crazy success in mind. It was just like, I know we can do this. Yeah. And I've talked about this on, on this podcast many times. I know we can get in a van and go make a living playing music. And that living might look like paying rent with roommates and driving a shitty car and not even having a car and, you know, maybe on food stamps, but we can do it. We playing knew that. Music. And we saw whenever we met Bill and the guys in all, whenever we were going to slip disc, we saw it being done by punk bands. Yeah. We saw it. They were like, no, we make, we make money. We make enough. I mean, we saw all of that shit. We saw how many times did we see Green Day part, you know, like in yeah. their bookmobile, you know, to playing to 300 kids and stuff like, well, no, we, it's true. we can do this. We can totally do this. Why can't we do this? And that was it. I didn't care about anything. 
past that. Disclaimer, Slip Disc was a short-lived punk club in Dallas, Texas that my brother just referred to. That we saw and met Bill Stevenson and Stefan Edgerton from all the band all that we ended up having a career with for 30 years. My brother here and I both played in a band with Bill Stevenson called Only Crime. And that was, geez, that was probably the last full-time band that we actually played together with because I left that band to join Rise Against. And then you left that band pretty much. And within... Eight months or so, yeah. Yeah, you joined the Toadies. So, well, you know, I ask everybody, and I know, of course, again, I know all these answers, (laughs) but what is your one that got away? uh, Something was stolen, you you lost, something I fucking tore up or fucked up. What do you think it is? It could be two, one of two. I think you're going to, I know you're going to get it one. you got rid of a fucking Rickenbacker that I bought you and that you just basically bought again. Um, oh, no, not that one. Oh, I've actually got three. I got three. And I have taken it upon myself to buy you bases that you had when we were kids. So yeah. you had a Yamaha BB300, like their beginner model. I got you that. I got you the Echo Violin Bass, which was like the Echo Company, a weird Italian company's version of the Hofner Violin Bass, the popularized by, of course, you know, Paul McCartney, all the companies made a cheaper version of that. I got but, you that. Was it that you had a weird Sharv, that Sharvel base? No, not that one. All right. Remember this? All right. Like years ago when I was in college, because I was my music teacher. I'm not saying any names where oh. I went. Not, not, no, let me tell the story. Yeah, yeah. I remember. remember yeah. yeah. So we had a band. Well, it was our only show for Government Flu. Hats off to Damien from Turned Out of Punk, you know. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was at the slip disc, the aforementioned slip disc. And um, I was telling my uh, music professor about it. And I didn't – I think I did have that Charvel. But I didn't want to go play a punk club with that Charvel. I was going to get – you know, I probably would have gotten it shoved up my ass, you know, and, <laughs> and would have yeah. deserved it. <laughs> I would have done it. So he was like, well – why don't you look in the, the instrument closet over there? We might have something. And I went, okay. So I did and found a beautiful P bass, probably early 70s or so. It was No, it was a 67. It wasn't, it was a, 60, a, 67. It wasn't a 67. It was post-67. It wasn't a 67. Well, it was before – it was pre-CBS because it did not have the, the large headstock. It yes, did not it have did. the large logo. Yes, it did. No, it didn't. I played it. Yes, it did. It was big headstock. Who remembers shit like this? I Who do. Who played I'm the fucking, bass? I was – We'll no. find pictures of it. <laughs> it had the smaller Fender Precision – it. it had the no. smaller Fender Precision <laughs> logo, so it was before – did it ever have that. Yes, no. it did. No, it didn't. Yes, it was – all right, what color was it? When you got it, it was sunburst. All right, I'll give you that. Okay. And then we and then we painted it, and it looked like the fucking Joker. It was like green with a purple pit guard or something. <laughs> it was, but regardless. Jesus, here, God. Irregardless. And it had all of that. That's not a fucking... <laughs> irregardless is not a fucking word. Irregardless. It was... Yeah, it had the Joker stuff and the big headstock and the big writing because it was post-fucking CBS. It wasn't yeah, pre-CBS. Can... It was... It, God damn it. I played it anyway. Listen, so that was the one because well, you fucked I, it up. Either well, you didn't let me finish the story because you started saying it was fucking pre CBS. Anyway, listen, it was. It was not goddamn pre CBS. I 
fucking promise you. Anyway, so I borrowed the bass, and then I think you were like, dude, just don't don't give it back. <laughs> I gotta give it back. They're like, why? Like, because Zach, I gotta give it back. You're like, well, I was right though. I said they they won't give a shit, and they didn't. They didn't give a shit. Yeah, they didn't give a shit. I I tried to bring it back, and he didn't give a shit, so I kept it. You know. That, Dude, I can you imagine if you still had that fucking bass? It would look different because we would have gotten rid of the the Joker paint, you know. And well, it would be yeah. it would be God damn. it would be a badass post CBS. I'm telling you, it had a small it had the small How? script no, logo. No, it did not. That was why I was excited. It looked like fucking Steve Harris's. He never had a pre CBS. No, it didn't. I yes, thought it, it was kind of <laughs> I thought it was kind of lame because it didn't damn look it. like Steve no, Harris. It, it was the big fucking writing. It was. Oh I was like, oh, well, God. it's it's free. No. Yeah. It it We're going to find a picture of this someday and I'm going to be right. And I'm going <laughs> to fucking You're drive wrong. to you. And just go, hey, <laughs> motherfucker, I was right. You, you drive nine asshole. fucking hours just to come to my house <laughs> and then drive back. That one, or do you remember the Rick I did buy from uh, Jim Heath? No. You don't remember this? Jim Heath is the Reverend Horton Heath, everyone. So, Lemmy wanted to make a record. He was making like a rockabilly record. The story was, is, and we know this from Omar Ifun, our friend who was working for Jim at the time. And um, so, Lemmy flew into Dallas to do a record with Jim, just to make him do a song or something. And he showed up, and Jim was like, okay, well, uh, you're going to play bass on it. Go, well, of course, Sam. He goes, all right, well, we've got a bass over here. It's a Fender Precision. And Lemmy was like, I'm not playing on that fucking thing. I only play on Rickenbackers. He goes, well, did you bring one? No. So they went to Spear Music, because Dan McCarthy, our good friend, filled in some of these details as well. Yeah. They both showed up to Spear Music and bought – a brand new, I think this is 2000 or so, a brand new a Rickenbacker, black and white, 4003 for, I think, a thousand bucks, which is a shitload of money, you know, in 2000. And uh, Lemmy played it once. I think he maybe, maybe played it twice on the song and then got rid of it. He didn't want anything to do with it. He just kind of left it there. He flew back and all that stuff. And Omar said, hey, um, Jim wants to sell that bass. Like, okay, well, how much? He goes, oh, what he got into it, 500 bucks. So I bought it for 500 bucks. It had only been played by Lemmy. It was brand new. I paid 500 bucks for it. And Lemmy was the only guy that had ever played it. And then you got rid of it, you fucking idiot. <laughs> I did get rid of it like a fucking idiot. <laughs> what do the British call it, you you Burke? Bert Dangler Squeezer. Well, yeah, you. So you, uh, you got rid of that. God damn, what a fucking moron. But do you remember the uh, the old school Squire jazz I had? Um, No. That Eric Reagan left behind at that gig. Oh, it was it was black, and it was from this. It was like an eighties model. Yeah, Yeah, it wasn't like a what you know have Squire. No, it was we'd put a I put a badass. It was the first badass I ever bought put that on it and it sounded like i think annie from elastica their bass player she mm-hmm. had one just like it she had a square jazz bass oh 
And it sounded like that. It sounded incredible when I had that GK head and all that shit, you know? So. I, 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 damn, you know, and again, you remember all this shit and it totally brings back all these memories that I fucking, I totally forgot like how that P bass was pre CBS. It wasn't fucking pre CBS. It was post CBS because it had the big headstock and that's why I was excited because it had the big writing. It wasn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> what? God damn it! It's been what thirty, thirty over thirty fucking years. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad we brought it up because it, it's you've been fucking wrong for I'm thirty. Years. God damn it! I'm not, I played suck. it. I played it. Why are you arguing? Because I because oh I know shit like this. You just I said, remember how do shit you like remember this. these things. I remember things. Yeah, but when because... it comes to guitars and shit, I'm. I remember. Do you more remember basses? You no, you're not the fucking yeah. bass player. I no, I'm the bass player. Why would you remember that? Do you remember being wrong about <laughs> this shit? Uh, I'm not well, this anyway. time. I'm not. Oh my god, <laughs> I'm gonna prove it to you. All right, you're wrong. All right, Bob. Um, <laughs> for everyone, this has been my brother uh, Donnie <laughs> That's Blair. It. You just leave. You leave. <laughs> and he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm right, everybody. Trust yeah, me. Wrong. I'm fucking right. I'm right. Anyway, everyone, uh, check out the Toadies' new record with uh, recorded by Steve Albini, as of yet untitled. It'll be yeah. out next year. You yeah. guys will be on tour for that. Uh, so everybody check them out and go. If they come to your town, go or travel to go see him. Fuck it. And uh, that's my brother, Donnie. Thank you for doing it, Bob. Love you. Thanks for having me. I, I love you, too. I love you, too. And yeah, I'll uh, probably talk to you in about an hour. (laughs) (laughs) We'll keep arguing about it, huh? That's fucking base. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Love you. Bye. That was my big brother. I hope you liked that. I think you heard a little bit of a different side of me because my guard is down because it's my fucking brother. But yeah, man, look. I'm biased. It's my brother. It's my immediate family. It's, you know, I only have one brother. We don't have sisters. We don't have any, we just each other. And we had rough life without going into it too much, but we did. So we've been through a lot together and we've been through all of our bands together, most of our bands. So I I guess I'm biased, but I also think he is one of the better bass players playing professionally nowadays. That's my opinion, folks. That's my opinion. I'll leave you with some music of his at the end here and see what you think. This is going to be, I'm going to leave you with a song called Keep Breathing off the Toadies record, The Lower Side of Uptown. And it's called Keep Breathing. And it's just a really good example of my brother's monstrous bass tone that I feel like he has, even if there's no distortion unit or just my brother on a bass and an amp, it's going to sound like this. Honorable mention or extra credit, check out the only crime song, which is one of the bands we did together with Bill Stevenson from The Descendants and Black Flag and all. And there's the first track on a record called Virulence, Virulence, sorry. And it's uh, called Take Me and it starts with bass and it is just the coolest bass riff ever. Uh, Bill Stevenson has, has said many times, it's if not his favorite, then one of his favorite bass riffs. And it's just a great example of my brother's playing. Take Me is my brother playing with his fingers This Toadies track is my brother playing with a pick. So you get kind of two sides there. 
Uh, at the end, I'm going to leave you with uh, you know by thanking uh, the wonderful folks over at Jim Dunlop and MXR Pedals. Find out what they're doing at jimdunlop.com. I am also going to thank the wonderful people at DistroKid. They are helping independent artists and artists of all stripes get their records on all the streaming platforms. They're doing great work. So DistroKid check them out. Thanks for listening to this episode. Like I said, this one was really, really special and important to me, and I hope you had a good time listening to it. I will keep doing them. We'll talk to you soon. It's hard.